Hello, everyone. Welcome to a long overdue edition of Generation Jihad. I'm your host, Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. Today, we have a special guest. It's Edmund Fitton Brown. He previously served as the United Nations Security Council's coordinator for its analytical support and sanctions monitoring team, as well as the United Kingdom's ambassador to Yemen. Edmund is currently an advisor to the Counter Extremism Project, and Edmund is probably our most frequent guest here at Generation Jihad. Edmund, welcome to Generation Jihad. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here again. Always great to have you, Edmund. Um, really looking forward to today's discussion. Um, part of the reason you, you, this episode is long overdue is we were anticipating this report. It was delayed. It was delayed again. And I was trying to keep the time slot open so that Edmund and I could be very agile to do this. And unfortunately, it uh, took my focus off of getting you a podcast out on a regular uh, basis. So I apologize for that. Um, today, Edmund and I are going to discuss the monitoring team's uh, 14th report on the groups and individuals that pose a threat to Afghanistan. That, of, of course, includes, but not limited to, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State Khorasan province, and the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. Edmund, I think you'll agree with this, with this, uh, this report. It's extremely interesting, but at the same time, to... Um, so I say terrorism nerds like you and you and I, not very surprising, but I do, will say there's some great new facts, great details within this report. Some of this I knew. Um, it's good to see some of the names that come out of this. And then I think that when you look at the analysis of the, of the team, I'm always a big fan of the the sanctions and monitoring teams reporting. I think they put the they make an excellent effort to get dig to the bottom of the truth. And they have a lot of pressure from a lot of different um, governments um, on what they're putting out. And I, I think it's a fantastic product. Um, you've always put out a great product, Edmund. And um, anyone who knows me knows I'm not a guy who blows smoke. Um, and I think that's why you're, you're here. That's why you're a reg regular. What, do you, what are your thoughts on the latest report, Edmund? Yeah, well, thanks, Bill. Thanks for those kind words. And, and I feel the same. I'm proud of the team for what they've done. Uh, it is the first uh, Afghan report that they've done since I left last summer. Um, and it's also the first uh, Afghan report or 1988 report, as we call it, because of the sanctions regime being uh, being set up by resolution 1988. Um, it's the first one that covers a full year of the Taliban in control. So the last one that I was involved in a year ago covered the, the changeover. It included the period from May to August 2021, uh, before the Taliban took over, and then it monitored, you know, talked about the the nine months since then. This time, it's a full 12 months of Taliban control. Um, when I read it, um, I, I agree with you. I, I was impressed by the detail. I wasn't surprised by very much of it. Um, it seems to me to be a very interesting and methodical building upon some of the things that we said a year ago. Yeah, I, I, you know, look, first, you you really passed the torch well. I, I don't think they've missed a beat. It must have been really difficult for you uh, doing that report last year with that transition. Um, you tell, tell us a little. Is that is that correct? Tell us a little bit about that. You know, you had an Afghan government. It was doing things. Um, you had to go. And then all of a sudden it all collapses. And uh, yeah, it, it, is that the case? Was that a difficult report to put together? 
It was, it was difficult. I mean, it really was. And, and one of the things that makes these reports difficult also is that at the moment, the, the, the 1988 committee, uh, which, which covers this issue, um, is on a year-to-year rollover. The mandate is only one year long, and it keeps being extended every December. So we were in this weird situation from May 2021. We knew that we were probably going to have to write another report in April 2022, but we didn't know it for sure. It was possible that in December, the the Security Council might have decided not to extend the mandate. So, of course, we were working actively on Afghanistan throughout the year. But still, you know, you can't help being mindful of the possibility that the mandate will lapse. now, when the Taliban took over, of course, that was a shocker for everybody. I mean, no matter what capacity you were observing Afghanistan in, that was an absolute shocker. And, you know, we had so many contacts. Most of our access inside Afghanistan was with the former Afghan authorities. And so we then watched these, these poor people, you know, being um, scattered to the four winds. And in some cases, of course, you know, suffering horrible consequences of the Taliban takeover. So that was traumatic. And of course, we then had to think through what happens next, as did the Security Council. The Security Council, who we work for, they uh, had to sort of pass various resolutions, figuring out how to continue to manage the situation in Afghanistan, despite some of the difficulties that exist uh, you know, on a sort of a, a geostrategic level, particularly between the uh, the uh, Americans and the Russians and the Chinese. Um, but they did a pretty good job of it. They kept passing resolutions. They were mainly rollover resolutions. And when they got to the monitoring team's mandate, they, they went ahead and extended. And we wrote the report in April. We had a lot of material from pre-August, which was from uh, from direct access inside Afghanistan, it was the period after August was harder. We had to rely more on reporting from well-placed member states like, you know, Pakistan, like China, like Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, France, Germany, the United States, the United Kingdom, um, you know, Turkey, lots lots of countries that have deep knowledge of Afghanistan and a deep stake in Afghanistan, uh, and sure enough, when, when the time, time came to write the report in April 2022, I think it was pretty good. We were, we were pleased with how it came out. Now, I felt for the guys taking over from me and having to do a whole year without a trip to Afghanistan. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I wasn't sure um, how hard it would be for them this time. But when I read the report, I was very, very pleasantly surprised. I think the quality has held up. Yeah, I, I concur. Uh, now, so uh, before we get to the report itself, just one quick follow-up question. It was fascinating. You explained when you're discussing how the mandate may not be renewed. Is it? Do you think it's possible that given the Taliban building ties, particularly with countries like China and probably to a lesser extent uh, Russia, that there could be some pressure within the Security Council to not renew the mandate? Would China have the ability to kill this on its own? Uh, so it, it would require, so the, the mandate um, of the uh, monitoring team is only renewed for a year, and therefore it doesn't require a consensus to kill the monitoring team on 1988. You could just not agree to a new mandate. So that could happen by default, it could lapse. Um, but the 
it's not really the monitoring team isn't the issue because if you think about it all that the monitoring team does is it provides the um it provides the security council with independent expert reporting on afghanistan which pretty much everybody in the security council agrees they need right. what's more controversial is should the sanctions continue but the sanctions don't lapse they would have to come up with it would have to be a positive security council resolution to kill the sanctions regime so no one country can do that that you, you answered my question let's dig into the um, that's and that's, that's very interesting so just to be clear i'm going to s- summarize that it would require the, the a government i'm i'm assuming it would require it to get all five of the key members of the security council to agree Ab- abs- absolutely if if somebody wanted to uh to abolish the sanctions regime it would require a security council resolution and that could be vetoed by any of the p5 but, okay great all right that that that's exactly that, that's good to know i mean that is somewhat comforting because i got to tell you the, these guys need to remain on these lists uh, a lot of them are al- particularly the uh, key taliban leaders are deeply tied to al qaeda um and this report gets into some of that um, some of the some of the new names that are popping up, not not new to you and I, but popping up in this report aren't even sanctioned. So, by the way, Bill, I mean, uh, to reassure you, I think that because people, you know, they don't want to alienate the Taliban, particularly the neighboring countries. They, you know, they worry about, you know, making sure that they don't um, incur the sort of the, the you know, like a, a sort of vengeful um, approach from the Taliban. So in many cases, they probably say things that the Taliban want to hear. But we know from private conversations, even with countries that sometimes sound as if they're somewhat sympathetic to the Taliban or that the ones that talk about, oh, you know, maybe it's time to normalize relations and all that sort of thing. Maybe it's time to recognize. Um, But we know that actually uh, almost all of those countries actually value the sanctions regime because they know it gives them leverage. They know that if the Taliban behave unreasonably towards them, then they can sort of turn around the Taliban and say, look, you're the pariahs, not us. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I always like, you know, the Chinese put on a very good public face, but I I, I know from watching their dealings with Pakistan, particularly, that they do like to keep a certain arm's length. They're willing to do transactional relationships with nefarious countries, China being a nefarious country itself, of course, but they're not going to fully get into bed and join the team. So I would expect the Chinese to not push hard in order to end the sanctions regime. They're not going to get it anyway. So they're they're not going to pick a fight that they're going to lose. Yeah, I just would hate to, you know, as you, you as you detected my concern, I would hate to see these reports end. Um, they're just too good. If the the information that's released, and the, you know, the more we know, the better we can, you know. Even if our governments aren't willing to take the fight to the Taliban at the moment, is the more information we have to, in, in case it's needed in the future, the better. And I, I'm a big believer in, in public understanding. Yeah. I completely agree, Bill. And one thing I like about this also is that the Taliban they don't like these reports and they react to them. And you probably saw that they've reacted already yes. to this one. And what I love about that is, I, I, you know, I mean, I think they think they're good at propaganda and good at uh, public relations. But to some degree, you, if you read their denial, because, you know, instead of a sort of a more nuanced response, which would be credible, 
It's a blanket denial of everything that's said in the report. And in doing it, A, they've sort of summarized the main points of the report to remind people of what yeah. they're accused of. And B, of course, the, the way that they've ordered it, they actually show the points on which they are particularly sensitive. And it shows that these reports hurt them and that they, and that they do uh, offer leverage. Yeah, I concur. I mean, one of the things I've documented is Taliban denials of Al Qaeda presence in Afghanistan, of of Al Qaeda leaders. I mean, they they they'll they make claims like, well, Al Qaeda hasn't been here since the U.S. invaded in two thousand and one. They all left. Meanwhile, I could sit here and document scores of senior Al Qaeda leaders and and mid level commanders who've been. I have done this. Um, you know, who have been killed in Afghanistan during raids. Of course, Ayman al-Zawahiri, of course, being killed in a safe house run by the, you know, uh, an associate of the deputy emir of the Taliban, uh, who was also their interior ministry minister um, in, uh, you know, in, in, I believe it was July 2022. You know, they, they, they are very sensitive to it. The problem is, is no one seems to really hold their feet to the fire. But Anything that may puts them on the defensive, in my opinion, is good. And also, you know, again, I, I just am a big proponent. We need to understand these groups. There are people on the inside, you know, in, in the U.S. and the U.K. and and in India and all these countries and Tajikistan and Uzbekistan are deeply concerned. And the more information they have to um, to deal with these threats and understand the nature, the, the better. I love these reports also. And it's partly because what these are is a periodic declassification of intelligence. So this is penetrating reporting that has been cleared for use by the monitoring team. The monitoring team then publishes it. So the one thing it is not is policy. And that's great because it means that member states that maybe their policy um, is paralyzed or struggling to figure out what do we do about this, you know, this challenge that Afghanistan presents but the great thing about monitoring team reports is that they give an unvarnished account of what is actually happening. And that then feeds into a more educated policy debate. Yeah, I, I concur with that. I, I've always, you know, one of my biggest complaints in doing this job for so long is, you know, I often see facts are manipulated in order to get policy. And this reports like this, there's no, as you noted, no policy involved in here. This is what's happening, you know. Now you do is it's you do with that information as you must. That's to the governments, right? But here's the facts on the ground, and that's what I respect. Let's um let's get into the discussion. We could boy, we could talk about this all day. I mean, we haven't even touched the report itself, but let's start doing that. Um, the first uh, item on the report is a discussion of the ta Taliban's enduring ties with Al Qaeda, as well as the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, and it mentions other groups in, as well. Um, there's a fascinating discussion in there of uh, it identifies three key leaders um, who are the, the report describes them as Al Qaeda associated, but it's doing it in a section where it's talking about how Al Qaeda leaders are serving within the Taliban government. There's an individual who's in the defense ministry who's using Al Qaeda training. He's, an, he's actually identified as Al Qaeda, not identified by name but using uh, Al-Qaeda training documents. Um, and he's, again, he's an actual Al-Qaeda member. Uh, so, you know, this, this shows these, uh, that these links, let me quote from the, from the uh, report here. It's a quote, 
the link between the Taliban and both Al Qaeda and Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, or that's the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, remains strong and symbiotic. A range of terrorist groups have greater free freedom of maneuver under the Taliban de facto authorities. They're making good use of this, and the threat of terrorism is rising in both Afghanistan and the region. End quote. I would also add Al Qaeda is always, and the, particularly, is pl playing a long game here. It's a threat not just to Afghanistan and the region, but globally, because as they build this capacity, they're always looking outward to expand its caliphate and, of course, use these attacks. Um, it, it identify it, it calls Afghanistan, it says Al Qaeda views Afghanistan as, quote, a safe haven, end quote. This is nothing, no news to listeners of Generation Jihad. Uh, to, to you, to readers of the Long War Journal, we've been talking about this for years, but it really is refreshing to see such definitive language being used by the sanctions and monitoring team. What are your thoughts on that, Edmund? Yeah, no, I, I think it's important that, that we restate this regularly. And of course, we have done, as you know, regularly in previous reports, not just 1988 reports, but also the 1267 reports on yeah. ISIL globally. Um, and it's important to remind people that there is this very, very close relationship between Al Qaeda and the Taliban. That in some cases, you know, they're they're more or less dual-hatted. Effectively, they, you don't know where Al Qaeda ends and the Taliban begins. Uh, this is particularly true of Al Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, where you know you you they'll they'll be fighting alongside the Taliban, and uh, you may not immediately be able to tell you know whether somebody's al-qaeda or taliban or effect effectively both um and then the close close association of sirajuddin haqqani uh who is uh, as you said the de facto minister of the interior deputy leader of the taliban um extremely close association with al-qaeda over many many years and the fact that zawahiri the leader of al-qaeda was in kabul and in a uh, in a guest house associated with sirajuddin haqqani this thing just has to be restated again and again, because otherwise the Taliban's regular mantra and propaganda that there is no presence of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and that there are no foreign terrorist fighters in Afghanistan, um, some people start to almost believe it, you know, because I think on the basis that if you just repeat something often enough, some people say, well, maybe it's true. And, um, of course, the biggest single item in this report albeit it's a long time ago, way back in July, um, it, is the, it is the killing of Zawahiri, you know, which was the ultimate explosion of the Taliban lie that al-Qaeda are not present in Afghanistan. Yeah, and, and the Taliban still haven't admitted that he was killed there. They said, well, we'll investigate, and then they've said nothing. Here, I'm going to note something from the report that, that talks about this uh, symbiotic relationship. Uh, it says the, the, the Taliban's providing al-Qaeda members with, quote, monthly welfare payments, end quote, and quote, Afghan passports, and I'll just use the term for it because I'm probably a blow pronouncing it, national identity cards. Um, now, just keep in mind that the Ministry of the Interior, which is controlled by Surajuddin Haqqani, he's the one that, that issues passports and identity cards. Um, this is just stunning. Another part in this report, again, I mentioned this earlier, their um, three leaders who they've identified as al-Qaeda associated. Um, this is what the U.S. military used to call dual-hatted Taliban and al-Qaeda, Taliban slash al-Qaeda leaders. So they, they had feet in both camp. 
One of them uh, is Kari Bariel. He's now the Taliban's uh, governor for Kapisa province, a central province just north of Kabul. Um, he, this guy's pedigree. He um, he was one of the co-leaders of the Kabul attack network. This was the group that uh, launched attacks in and around Kabul. They pulled resources with Al-Qaeda movement and Taliban in Pakistan, uh, Lashkari Taiba, a host of, of groups that operated in the area. They pulled resources to conduct attacks against what was then the International Security Assistance Force, and then it became Resolute Support, Afghan civilians, Afghan government, Afghan military, and some of these were staggering um, suicide assaults. Uh, he also was a guy who, and I testified in a case uh, where victims of uh, from U.S. soldiers and civilians who were killed or wounded who sued Iran for uh, its support of the Taliban. Kari Bariel was a, uh, a key a figure in this. He took money from the uh, Islamic River, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force to execute those attacks. Uh, he's also identified as the Taliban's Northern Zone Commander. He's one guy. So this is one of the dual-hatted Taliban commanders. There's a, a, another key individual, uh, his, Hafiz Hakim. He's the Taliban's governor, Nuristan. Keep in mind that that's a key province for Al-Qaeda. A lot of Al-Qaeda uh, shelter in northeastern Afghanistan and Kunar and Nuristan. My uh, sources tell me he's associated with Mullah Zakir, a former Guantanamo detainee. Um, when he was freed, after, shortly after he was freed in 2007, he took over the Taliban's military in the south. He was basically the Taliban surge commander. So this guy, Hakim, reported de- uh, directly to Zakir. Um, he's, uh, you know, so Hakim. Uh, a nasty inv- individual. Um, and then there is another uh, individual mentioned who's Tajmir J- Jawad. He's the deputy director of the intelligence um, who reports to Sarajun Hakani. He was also a co-leader of that K- Kabul attack network. The USA military was targeting. I checked. I think the earliest I went back to was 2013. We were the US military is trying to kill this guy. Um, he may have been targeted pre- even prior to that. Um, so, yeah, these are all these are dual-hatted Taliban al-Qaeda leaders that are embedded in the Taliban government. Um, and then this report, I'm going to, I'll quote from it real quickly, uh, quote, al-Qaeda members have received appointments and advisory roles in the Taliban's security and administrative structure structures, uh, end quote, including, end quote, un- that, and that's, then it talks about that unnamed tra- training director uh, in within the, the uh, Ministry of the Defense. It's this is the integration of the Taliban, uh, or, or integration isn't the right word. Well, actually, yeah, the Taliban is integrating members of Al Qaeda into its security structure. They're they're giving these individuals, these Al Qaeda leaders, the ability to give Al Qaeda all the resources they can need, they can want. I'd love to see the full list of individuals that that might be. Um, I'm hoping that at some point the UN, uh, the sanctions and monitoring team. Uh, provides uh, some more information, but these are this is this is what I have been warning about. And there's, oh, the report also mentions, I believe, Edmund. It says that there's Al Qaeda training camps um, operating as well. And um, I reported on one of those, and he's met, and that was also in the UN report. Um, what was his name? Uh, he's the guy up in northeastern Afghanistan. Abu Klaas. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that was in the last report. Um, he's an individual who was in was in a uh, in jail at Bagram and he was freed and went right back to his role as building an al-Qaeda um, 
building his Al-Qaeda cadre in uh, Kunar and Nuristan. So it's really some really dangerous stuff. It is. And, and, and to add to all of that, Bill, it's worth mentioning, isn't it, what the report says about the relationship between Al-Qaeda and the Pakistani Taliban as well. Yes. Um, so Al-Qaeda's got its finger in all of these very threatening pies. Um, they are, as you say, being incorporated into Afghan structures. Um, there's no accident about the way that Siraj took over the interior ministry. The Haqqanis were all over Kabul right at the time that the Taliban took over in August 2021. And uh, they went straight for the interior ministry, for the intelligence services, they wanted the uh, portfolios that would give them control over nationality, passports, identity cards, etc. And, you know, this has a lot of benefits for uh, a terrorist organization like the Haqqani Network, which, I mean, let's face it, the Haqqani Network, although technically not sanctioned by uh, the UN as a terrorist organization, it is nevertheless sanctioned as a threat to peace and security in Afghanistan. And by gaining those levers of power in the new uh, de facto authorities. Um, it gives them all sorts of options, including providing passports uh, in whatever name to terrorists who might travel, something we should bear in mind for the future. It may not be an immediate threat, but it's a potential threat. And then, of course, they have the, the, another option it gives them, which I don't think they've done it yet, but it's something I suppose they could do over time. They've always denied there are foreign terrorist fighters in uh, Afghanistan. Well, of course, if they control nationality and passports, then they could, if they wanted to, over time, uh, prove this uh, by making them all Afghan nationals, at which point they could say there really are no foreign terrorist fighters. But that doesn't mean they would be any less dangerous. No, listen, Tajmir Mohammed or uh, uh, Tajmir Jawad, uh, uh, Kari Bariel, um, uh, Hafiz Hakim, they're Afghans. Just because they're Afghans doesn't mean they can't be Al-Qaeda. This has always been something Absolutely. that's driven me nuts, that if they were an Afghan, they couldn't be Al-Qaeda. Like, is Al-Qaeda has, a, this is why I always think, and we'll get into the estimates. I think that the estimates have always been understated. Um, I always, and we'll get into that. I always view the numbers that are given out as a good starting discussion point. But uh, my, in my experience is these generally are underestimated or misunderstood. Let's move on to the section of the report that discusses the Taliban and counterterrorism. Um, as we all know, the individuals like Zalmay Khalizad, the former, the, the basically the man who's responsible for the the deal with the Taliban, the Doha deal, that uh, the so-called peace agreement with the Taliban that was anything but peaceful. Um, they've advocated that the Taliban can be a partner in counterterrorism. And here's what the UN report says about this. Uh, I'll quote from it again. While they, of course, being the Taliban, have sought to reduce the profile of these groups that have conducted operations against the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, Khorasan province, in general, the Taliban have not delivered on the counterterrorism provisions under the agreement for bringing peace to Afghanistan between the United States of America and the Taliban. Of course, end quote, of course, that's the Doha deal. Um, I would argue not in general. Um, the Taliban have not delivered on the counterterrorism provisions whatsoever. The only reason the Taliban delivers anything on the Islamic State Khorasan province is because they're mortal enemies. The Islamic State doesn't like the Taliban because it won't swear allegiance to its emir and join the Islamic State. Um, the Taliban doesn't want any anyone to uh, get in the way of its rule in Afghanistan. So that's the only, you know, if the Islamic State turned around and today, tomorrow and said, 
hey, you know what? We could coexist. We're not going to attack you. We're cool with your thing, with your thing. Just, you know, leave us alone and we'll leave you alone. I guarantee you the Islamic State Khorasan province would not be a problem for the Taliban. This part, uh, you know, I would say this might be understated, but I think if you read between the lines here, the the sanctions and monitoring team are saying don't trust the Taliban to uh, be a, 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 a an essential partner when it comes to counterterrorism. Yeah, that, that's exactly what they're saying, Bill. And, and they, they say it in terms um, and they also make that, you know, the, the point that, you know, how can you possibly work with a counterterrorism partner which uh, seems to reserve the right to decide who they consider to be uh, their enemies, uh, you know, the terrorists they're willing to target and those that they're not. You know, the association with Al-Qaeda that we've just been talking about earlier, um, you know, already invalidates the idea that the Taliban could be a sincere uh, counter-terrorism partner. I mean, we're certainly not ready to say uh, that ISIL is such a big problem that we all think that actually Al-Qaeda is okay. That's not, that's, they're not okay. That is not the view of the international community. So, and I think you're exactly right when you say that the thing that really sets the Taliban off about ISIL-K is that it's a rival and it undermines their uh, ideological message. Uh, the ISIL-K accuses the Taliban of being godless nationalists, basically, and the Taliban don't like being accused of that. Um, and they don't like the fact that the ISIL-K sort of is, is, is undermining their ability to uh, to demonstrate that they control Afghanistan fully. So those are the reasons they don't like them. Um, if you were, let's, let's imagine that we went down that track of working with the Taliban as a counter-terrorism partner. The first thing is that the Taliban would never be honest with you about the reality on the ground. So you would be effectively signing up to counter-terrorism operations in which you were partially blind because your counter-terrorism partner, the Taliban, were lying to you about who was what and what they were doing. And we know from the way the Taliban behaves, particularly towards Uzbeks and Tajik uh, Afghan, Afghans, we know that they are happy to, as it were, you know, point the finger at people, at their enemies and say, those are terrorists. And then when there's somebody that they like or somebody that's convenient for them, they're not going to agree that those are terrorists. So, so you know, you run the risk that you get involved in some kind of operation that's actually targeting somebody who has been identified for purely malicious reasons, nothing to do with them actually being a terrorist. The other point is, you know, when people talk about counterterrorism and what does that actually mean, counterterrorism operations, they need to be governed by certain principles to be things that the West can actually engage in. You know, it's not good enough to say, uh, oh, well, there's these bad guys and they're called ISIL-K um, and let's pay the Taliban a load of money or give them a load of equipment to go out and kill them. That is non-compliant. It has nothing to do with counterterrorism. That is, that is, that is simply extrajudicial killing and extrajudicial killing that is entirely un under the control of the Taliban and targeted by the Taliban. So I, I often think that people who talk about the Taliban as potential counterterrorism partners presumably just know nothing about what counterterrorism operations involve. I couldn't agree with you more, Edmund. That's uh, well said. Uh, you know, look, at the end of the day, you can't trust terrorists to fight terrorists they're you know the taliban has used suicide attacks against civilians against 
the coalition against the Afghan government. It was the suicide attacks were key in degrading the legitimacy of the Afghan government and the Afghan security forces. Um, the Taliban still says that it has suicide bombers in its ranks. Uh, they, they call them martyrdom seekers or fedayeen. Uh, you know, and this is what you're going to trust. Uh, that's that's absolute madness. This is wishful thinking from people who, particularly in the case of someone like Zalmay Khalizade, who's still selling a bad deal uh, when, uh, that he was the architect of. And that would be that Doha agreement that, you know, paved the way for the Taliban takeover of, of Afghanistan. This is Generation Jihad. Today's guest is Edmund, our good friend, Edmund Fitton Brown. He's the former coordinator of the United Nations Security Council's analytical support and sanctioning sanctions and monitoring team, as well as the United Kingdom's former ambassador to Yemen. And he currently serves as an advisor to the counter extremism project. Uh, Edmund and I, of course, are discussing the sanctions and monitoring team's uh, latest report on the threats and individuals um, posed uh, that, that are, or the threats posed uh, to the state of Afghanistan today. Um, Edmund, let's, uh, let's move on to the report notes. And I'll, again, I'll just read from it. Uh, these reports are so well-written, I may as well, instead of summarize them, I may as well just quote for them. Here it goes. Uh, it's about Al-Qaeda's uh, uh, rebuilding its capabilities. Uh, quote, there are indications that Al-Qaeda is rebuilding operational capability, that the TTP, that's the movement in Taliban in Pakistan, is launching attacks into Pakistan with support from the Taliban, that groups of foreign terrorist fighters are projecting threats across Afghanistan's borders, end quotes. And a lot of those groups, of course, are, are groups like the Turkestan Islamic Party, Ansarullah, which is a Tajik group. There's a group forming up that's, um, that I'm, uh, you know, that's somewhat new. It's called the Tariki Taliban Tajikistan or the movement of the Taliban in Tajikistan, um, Islamic movement Uzbekistan, Islamic Jihad Union. You know, we go on and on. And of course, the Pakistani groups that still operating training camps. These are terrorist groups that are uh, stack, of, you know, Harkat al-Mujahideen, which the State Department, uh, this isn't mentioned in the report, but previous reporting has noted that the groups like Harkat al-Mujahideen was running training camps in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. So again, not surprising. Um, the report does note had something interesting that the Al Qaeda may feel at some time that is that is constrained by Al, uh, by the Taliban and may seek to move senior leadership. But I don't think we're anywhere near that. And particularly when we're seeing Al Qaeda leaders being integrated into the Taliban's uh, security and administrative structures as well. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. I mean, I I, I agree. I agree with that. I, I think. Uh, you know, when, when we talk about constraint, I suppose you can say that um, the Taliban probably has the uh, ability to say to terrorist groups inside Afghanistan, don't do stuff that will cause us a problem, don't do stuff that will embarrass us, that will surprise us. Um, so maybe there's some element of constraint operating in that respect. And this is where I think you have an interesting geometry operating. And you referred to all of those groups like TTP, like ETIM, uh, like uh, IMU, um, all of these groups pose a threat to neighboring countries. Um, they, you know, so they're, they're usually, if it's, if it's Uzbeks, it's targeted against Uzbekistan. Uh, if it's Pakistanis, it's, it's, it's targeted against Pakistan, etc. cetera. Um, and from the Taliban's point of view, these are their friends. They're their comrades in arms. 
They are the people that they sympathize with ideologically to a large degree. And they're not willing to do anything really harsh against these people. They don't, they don't, want, to, they don't want to shut them down. They don't want to expel them. They don't want to imprison them. They want to continue to be their friends. And yet they need, if they are going to uh, rule pa uh, Afghanistan, they need some element of um, cooperation with those neighboring countries. So at the same time as they're friends with IMU and friends with TTP, they also want help from Islamabad and help from Tashkent. And this is the tension that the, that the Taliban are trying to manage. How do we stay friends with our friends whilst hoodwinking our neighbors into going easy on us? That's the sort of, that's the kind of calculation they're trying to make. And then the final, the final complication of this calculation from the Taliban point of view is that ISIL Khorasan is waiting in the wings with a sort of a siren message, a rejectionist message saying to these guys, we are the true resistance. We are the people who want to continue the fight. The Taliban are, they're compromising. They're not real jihadis. They've they're holding them. you back. They're holding you back. Exactly. And so the Taliban is terrified that both people from these groups and people from the Taliban itself will defect to ISIL-K. And that also is one of the reasons why the Taliban have done such a poor job of actually adjusting to the reality of government. Yeah, it's certainly a balancing act. And then, Edmund, I have you on because you could read my mind. That was the point I was going to make if you didn't, that um, this certainly is an opening for the Islamic State Khorasan province uh, to poach from these groups, you know, to go after the what I call the red-blooded jihadis as if there's a, you know, uh, a cool blooded uh, jihadi, but whatever. Uh, they, that is it's certainly an opening. I, I also think um, countries like Pakistan, particularly, are wise enough to know that the Taliban, which it wants to keep in power, which it's managing with its strategic depth, because again, the, the Pakistanis are, are willing to endure. During the worst of the, the Taliban, the movement of the Taliban and Pakistan insurgency from 2007 to, say, 2015, probably about 100,000 Pakistanis, civilians, security personnel, government officials were killed in horrific Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban attacks, suicide bombings in just about every major city, a suicide assault on general headquarters. The Pakistanis understood that the Pakistani Taliban was being sheltered and supported by the Afghan Taliban and yet endured that for the greater good of maintaining strategic depth. So I think whatever happens now, as long as it could be a slow boil, the reality is, is about, I think, around 900 casualties in the last year in, in Pakistan. I'm reading a lot of analysis out there where people are saying things like, Oh, the Pakistanis can't tolerate this anymore. Well, look, they tolerated up to 100,000 to get its strategic depth. The cynical Pakistani, the deep state, what's 900 a year when they were willing to endure? That's my take on it. I, so they're, they're going to be tough with the Taliban, but not tough enough that's going to break that relationship. And additionally, the Pakistanis don't want the individuals don't want TTP members, which they feel the, 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 the Afghan Taliban can constrain in some way to go to groups like the Islamic State Khorasan province, which they have zero leverage over. So uh, I'm always a little um, 
you know, China, China, in the case of China, I think Pakistan and China are the two biggest ones from my perspective. China is, is purely transactional. Um, as long as it feels the Taliban are doing enough to keep a rein on the on the Turkestan Islamic Party or Eastern Turkestan Islamic uh, movement, whatever you prefer to call them, uh, the China is very happy to get its you know get its minerals and and its business inside of Afghanistan for not that the Chinese aren't stupid and they they and I think they the Chinese would much rather have the U.S. out of Afghanistan off of its out of its backyard. Um, and a Taliban in control. Um, so they're not, I don't think they're going to overly push hard on the, on the issue. The Iranians would be the third country. I think it's the same dynamic. They really, one of the big reasons they supported the, uh, the Taliban and Al Qaeda again, which we, we proved in a federal court was to get the U S off of its, um, off of its, uh, Eastern border. It just could not count in having the U S in both Iraq and Afghanistan, so, so I think they, they'll put pressure on the, the Taliban to try to constrain these groups, but not enough to make it untenable so that the Taliban could potentially lose power. What you describe, Bill, is, is a sort of a, it's a variable geometry around Afghanistan. Yeah. I think each neighbor feels a, a combination of similar concerns, but they're in different measures and they, some feel more threatened than others. Um, some have a higher pain threshold or a higher tolerance threshold than others. Um, and, and, and in some cases, you know, there'll be an issue that is more important to one country than it is to another. You know, I think, uh, I think you know, when you look at the um, Iranian-Afghan uh, dynamic, you know, one of the sort of underappreciated aspects of that over recent years has been just how many uh, Iranian border guards and uh, anti-narcotics people have been killed because of the narcotics trade that goes across that border. Um, so I think for, for, I think that's the interesting thing. The neighbors need to work together. They need to have each other's backs and to help each other to put pressure on the Taliban to behave like good neighbors. Um, the reason that's difficult to do is because all of them have a slightly different mixture of concerns and mixture of interests. And the one thing I would add on, on Pakistan, I think, is I, I think Islamabad is disappointed by the performance of the Taliban in power. Um, and I think there's a couple of other uh, components to that. And, uh, and one of those is that the Taliban has been uh, extremely vocal about their rejection of the border. Yes. Um, and that's a problem for Pakistan. And Pakistan finds that, uh, you know, yeah, it, it perhaps... Perhaps it's galling, you know, that they sh that the Taliban should show no understanding of the Pakistani position on that. Um, so, and, and of course, you know, one of the problems that arises on not just the Pakistani border, we've seen it on the Iranian border too. Um, but you know, there is potential for uh, cross-border violence uh, and, uh, and and potential, you know, actually that potential escalation in some cases. So, so that's a little bit dangerous, um, and, and that's why that's one of the reasons the TTP is so dangerous because they're they're operating across that disputed. Uh, border, um, you know, and, with, and of course, one of the reasons why the, the the Afghan Taliban are, you know, are, are not good allies to the Pakistanis on this. Um, and the other point about the Taliban, and the report is really strong on this, is the extent to which the Taliban is degenerating into a uh, into a Pashtun chauvinist organization. Um, basically, you know, it, it, it's not just its uh, religious ideology, if you like. It is the fact that it is 
uh, it is so completely um, centered on certain uh, Pashtun tribes and uh, exclusive or exclusionary towards uh, others. So you know, if you're a if you're a Tajik Afghan Taleb, you know, then you you know you're you're way outside. And nobody cares what you think. Uh, nobody in Kandahar cares what you think or cares about the interests of the of your constituents in your part of Afghanistan. The reason I make that point is that, of course, um, extreme Pashtun chauvinism is actually not a helpful impulse in Pakistan either. That is not something that Pakistanis can relate to. Yeah, yeah. And on, you know, look, there is a senior Tajik Taliban commander, it's Muli uh, Fasi Houdin, who is the chief of staff of the army, I believe. Um, so they do hold some positions, but you're right. They're they're certainly marginalized. On the point with uh, drugs, and uh, maybe this will be an opening to discuss that briefly, the Taliban and Iran, there's been designations out there, narcotics uh, in the U.S., that have detailed this uh, Mullah name Baruch, Baruch, who's actually uh, listed in the, who's mentioned in the report. He was, you know, he was working directly with the Iran's IRGC Quds Force to um, run drugs across the border. So the Iranians, you know, the IRGC is the power, the real power that be just like the Pakistani military is in Pakistan. So yeah, the drugs is a problem and the cross-border issues, but at the end of the day, the Iranians, particularly those in power, want to keep those tensions to a, a, to a low boil um, because money's got to be made in that. And, and let's let's quickly discuss the um, portion of the report on the narcotics. And there was also a section on financing as well that about the Taliban. Edmund, tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the report, a little bit like the one a year ago, it starts to separate the issue of narcotics from finance. They come together in the report. And the reason they come together is because there is a long history, as you know, yes. of the insurgency being financed by, by uh, narcotics revenues. Um, but of course, uh, we recognized a year ago and the team has recognized again now um, that, you know, the Taliban doesn't, you know, Taliban is not primarily funded by narcotics anymore. It's 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 governing the country. It's the de, the de facto authorities of the country. Uh, they're controlling our whole economy. They're controlling taxation revenues. They're, so you know they are they they have the they have the they have the revenues of the state at their disposal. And or, or you know so so it's what that has done is it's 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 changed the way that those two components of the report relate to each other. They're semi detached from each other now. Um, the interesting point about the narcotics, and I think you know, a little bit going back to what you were just saying about the way that narcotics and the profits from narcotics and the corrupting effect of narcotics, uh, it operates in all countries, of course, um, but it particularly operates in, in Afghanistan and in some of the neighboring countries. Um, and uh, the, where the report is really interesting is, of course, that from an ideological point of view, the Taliban really want to say that they're against narcotics because it's not good for their uh, religious ideological credibility uh, if they appear to be still uh, still um, hand in glove with uh, with narcotics. But the report makes it very clear that they still are, and that this is partly because you know people have got rich off this, and those people were involved in the success of the Taliban, and they're very well connected, and there are untouchables 
who are directly involved in the narcotics trade, but because of their credibility with the, with the Taliban leadership, in some cases with Haibatullah himself, um, they, you know, nobody is going to stop them. Nobody is going to tr- arrest them. Nobody is going to stop their drug shipments. And, and so you know, this is a really important uh, point. And it's, again, this, the, 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 the ethnic dimension of this comes in as well, because one of the things we saw during my time was that they were, for example, sometimes they were happy to get involved in enforcement operations in Uzbek or Tajik parts of the country because they didn't care about uh, mm-hmm. the people who were getting rich off that. They, they cared about their own, the really well-connected people who were, who were doing it. And, you know, some of the people who are sanctioned in connection, partly because, of, because, of, because they are regarded as, uh, as, as key in the narcotics uh, side, um, these people are very well-connected and uh, very senior uh, in the present de facto uh, authorities. And this also touches upon another point, which is, you know, the extent to which the Taliban can adapt to administration. Some of them don't want to. If you're a rich, if you've got rich off, off, off uh, dealing in heroin or in methamphetamines, uh, or the report actually interestingly also mentions fentanyl, I think. Um, if, yes, you've got rich, if you've got rich off narcotics, do you actually want to sort of go back to being a sort of, you know, a uh, uh, sort of a, an administrator who, instead of having all that wealth and uh, power and respect and fear from people, uh, you become responsible. You have to listen to complaints. You have to be accountable. Uh, that's difficult. And they're having the same problem with some of the former military commanders. Um, people who, who, you know, the respect of being carrying a gun and people being afraid of you. Uh, you say to somebody like that, you know, you should, you should be, uh, you know, you should become the assistant district commissioner you know, who listens to petitions from people who say that you haven't built a road in their, in their district. Um, and, and a lot of them don't want that. And so that, that sort of, that, that uh, transition of a, an insurgency into an administration is not easy. Yeah, they, uh, just a quick, couple of quick details. It mentions Sergeant Haqqani, again, deputy emir of the Taliban, one of two, Maliku being the other, that's Muammar's son. Um, Siraj is uh, running meth labs in eastern Afghanistan. He's also the interior ministry. Would you, in effect, here have as a narco state? You know, and I think that this 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 is an inconvenient truth for the Taliban, much like its ties with Al Qaeda or the presence of Al Qaeda and other terrorist groups with, within the country. The Taliban know it's happening and, in many ways, support it because it keeps those who need to be. You look, I don't do I, if. In a perfect world, I think Mullah Habibullah Akhundzada, the Emir of the Taliban, would get his perfect uh, Islamic emirate with all the rules being followed. But he knows that he needs to keep those who the pow- the powerful individuals within the Taliban keep them happy and keep the money flowing because he can get a near perfect Islamic state in in Afghanistan. But yeah, it's an inconvenient truth that you know that uh, the Taliban will, will tell you that probably narcotics are down to zero or they're going to get us there. That's what they did pre 9-11. But everyone knew it was happening. Well, and Bill, you know, this is one of the reasons, again, why I, I, why I, I enjoyed doing this, this work and why I am, again, delighted to see this report that the, that the team has produced, because this inconvenient truth needs to be shouted from the rooftops. It does. You're and right. This, this is one of the things that was so disappointing about the Doha Accords, that this, 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 this issue, which is a major international security issue. You know, Afghanistan is producing the majority of the world's heroin. And 
and you know that heroin is turning up in throughout North America. It was it was during my time. It was intercepted in Canada, um, and you know now they're big into methamphetamines, as you were saying. There's this there's talk of fentanyl as well, and so what this report enables the international community to do is to go back to the Taliban and say, sorry, but you are behaving in a way that is directly damaging us. And unless you, know, unless you do, some, re- do something real about this, not just passing decrees or issuing decrees, but actually prove that you are suppressing the drug industry and ceasing, as you describe it, to be a narco state, um, that is a very good reason not to normalize relations. It is a very good reason not to recognize one of many. Um, let's let's move on uh, to I, look. I, I I think dare I say this? You know, here in the United States, no one would ever say. You know, I think the Ku Klux Klan is a um, has been reformed, and maybe this is a group that we could work with going forward. No one would ever make that argument, but somehow we can, you know, say the Taliban's going to be a responsible partner in the international community. It's not going to have al-Qaeda ties. It's not going to be a narco state. It's not going to promote other terrorist groups, shelter them. Um, but, you know, that's the world we live in. Let's uh, let's move on to the uh, quick, quickly. We've got three more issues here to discuss, Edmund. Um, the report provides some numbers um, on al-Qaeda and the Islamic State Khorasan province, as well as the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan. Uh, I want to be very clear. You know, I always found numbers to be somewhat squishy and typically and particularly in the case of al-qaeda underestimated um don't get me started on how the u.s government said that al-qaeda only had 50 to 100 um leaders and operatives in afghanistan um when the u.s military for they did this for six years between 2010 to 2015 until we raided an al-qaeda camp and killed 150 of them um they maintain that consistent number um uh for years so i've always been very very skeptical of these numbers but i do again i do believe that it's a good starting point here's what the uh, report estimates that says 30 core al-qaeda leaders i guess that would be um i always hate this distinction between core and non-core i guess what they're probably getting at is is key leaders or i don't know if that means you know maybe maybe you could shed some light on that um but that, and then about 600 Al-Qaeda members and maybe thousands when it comes to their families and, and whatnot. And then somewhere around 200 members of Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent are there. That's Al-Qaeda's branch in, in the region. Uh, for the Islamic State Khorasan, it says somewhere between 4,000 to 6,000 Islamic Khorasan province, Islamic State Khorasan province um, members. And I believe the number was 6,000 for the, uh, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan that were sheltering inside of Afghanistan. Um, I suspect the last two numbers are probably pretty accurate. Um, and the numbers on Al Qaeda in my estimation are probably low. Um, because again, a lot of times Afghans are not seen as being members of Al Qaeda. One of the things I documented over the years was particularly when the U S was military was actually reporting on raids against al-Qaeda. They were present in 24 of 34, it was 24 or 26 of Afghanistan's 34 provinces. How do you keep that kind of presence with only 50 to 100 members when you're killing anywhere from 25 to 75 a year? And then one year was about 150. 
Um, those numbers had to be just had to be underestimated. I get it. Some of these are low level level members, but Al Qaeda historically has had a significant presence in Afghanistan, and I doubt they scaled it back that much. Um, you know, I could go on and on, and I'll stop there, Edmund, and um, ask you what you think about these these numbers for the groups. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, Bill, I have the highest regard for the the work you've done on this in this area, um, and you know, you you proved over a prolonged period that these numbers were low um, and the, get, you know, the estimates were low. And uh, you, you also have talked a lot about dual hatting and, and that's really interesting as well. And you're absolutely right. No reason at all why, why an Afghan can't be a member of, uh, of uh, Al-Qaeda and, and many are, just as, just as many Afghans are members of ISIL Khorasan. There's, no, there's no, yes. uh, no, reason why that sh- you know, no reason why that shouldn't be the case. And it is the case. Um, so um, I definitely you know, hear what you say on this. The, the team's methodology on this is to listen to member states and to try to produce a synthesis of the estimates that are provided by member states. And those estimates vary widely. Um, and so it is, as you say, it's a little bit of a shot in the dark as you try to sort of say, well, we're trying to reach it. We, we've sort of reached a broad consensus around this figure. Um, and then even once you've got those figures, then the question arises of who exactly are you counting? Um, are you just counting people who are sort of out there with guns? Are you also counting uh, people who are members or supporters? Are you, talk, are you counting family members, dependents? Um, and so it gets really murky. And I've never liked the figures as they stand because I've always considered them to be, you know, sort of uh, so approximate. But where it's valuable, uh, and we've discussed this before, where it's valuable is the trend. It's whether you think that the numbers are increasing or decreasing or whether they're steady. And uh, I think on, on Al-Qaeda, um, you know, they, they seem to be more or less steady, as far as I can tell, from compared to previous reporting. Um, and on ISIL, interestingly, uh, they are really definitely saying that those have increased. Yeah, that though, that um, used to be around, if I recall, a year or two ago, somewhere around 2,000, I think. Two, two to 3,000. Yeah, yeah that, that sounds right. Yeah, There's more or less a consensus amongst member states that ISIL-K has doubled in strength over the past two years. That And that's, that's the, people give various reasons for that. That's partly, it's partly recruitment. Um, you know, we talked about this uh, you know, ISIL-K's ability to attract people from other extremist groups, including the Taliban in Afghanistan. Uh, they've also certainly been able to at- attract, uh, I think, probably small numbers, but, but you know, nevertheless, they have attracted some former members of the Afghan uh, uh, security forces. Um, people, you know, who are desperate, maybe either sort of, you know, maybe they're angry, they just want to attack the Taliban, and this is one way of doing it. Uh, or they, or they, or they've got no way of subsisting, and ISIL has money, and it can pay them, and they have relevant skills. So there may be an element of that. And then, of course, a, a big part of the uh, growth of ISIL K was the sheer recklessness and sabotage of the Taliban when they took over the country, and they simply, uh, they simply broke open the prisons. Um, and you know, again, when 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 people say, uh, wouldn't wouldn't the Taliban be a good counterterrorism partner against ISIL K? One of the first things that I say to them is, well, it would have been helpful if they hadn't actually let them all go. That was really a baffling decision to me. I'm really surprised they didn't round them up. Um, I I would love to have been a fly. on. I, I wonder if that was just sheer chaos and 
if they really didn't put much thought into that. But yeah, yeah, it happened. Yeah. And I mean, I want to be very clear. These numbers being given on, I I, I think the ICE, the uh, Islamic State, Khorasan province and Afghan, uh, movement Taliban in Pakistan, I think those numbers are, they sound right. That, that sounds, uh, you know, the Al-Qaeda numbers may be low, but these are these numbers are far better than anything ever put out by U.S. intelligence, even going backwards in the past. So I, I know I, I don't want to I know I'm being skeptical or critical, but this is far more realistic an estimate of Al-Qaeda given by the sanctions and monitoring team here than that ridiculous 50 to 100 estimate given put out for six years straight by the U.S. government. So, you know, again, this, I, I, I understand. And as you explained, some of the constraints, this is always I, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in those meetings and on some of these issues and see where the disagreements uh, lie. Um, it just just out of curiosity, I guess that's the geek curiosity part of me. But uh, it must be fascinating and, and, and probably at times, as you had mentioned, a little bit frustrating. But again, I still think the product that's being put out here is a best effort, you know, and at times given some constraints. And also, Bill, I want to I want to highlight, you know, as you said, that estimate on TTP, the Pakistani Taliban, people forget how big that is. It's, oh, yeah. you know, it's a lot of people. Um, you know, that's a really strong group, and it's a, uh, it's I, I I would say with, you know, maybe ISIL K is close, but I would I would say with some confidence that uh, TTP is the single largest terrorist group in Afghanistan. Yeah, and that's just what's in Afghanistan too. We're not talking about what's still in Pakistan. Um, and I'm guessing those numbers fluctuate as the pal the Pakistan. That's got to be a difficult one to track as the Pakistani military conducts operations at times. Um, there's a lot of overflow. And, you know, I think another thing um, I remember, and this is out there in the public too, but I've been told by several members of U.S. military intelligence over time that, you know, the Taliban, when they cross the border in the Pakistan, they're the Pakistani Taliban. When they cross the border back in Afghanistan, they're the Afghan Taliban. So, um, you know, I always found that interesting as well, sort of a, a force multiplier, you know, with some, you know, just as, you know, the dual-houted Afghan-Pakistani Taliban as well. Well, and then, you know, again, coming back to the border point, you know, there are border tribes, you know, and, and, yes. and you, can, you can actually disagree about whether they're Afghan or Pakistani. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, let's move on to the the report notes that the Islamic State Khorasan province, it's, uh, it's increasing operations and growing threats. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll quote quickly quote from it. Quote, the operations of ISIL-K, or Islamic State Khorasan province, are becoming more sophisticated and lethal, if not more numerous. Edmund, let's talk a little bit about the growing threat of the Islamic State Khorasan province. I, I, I've been noticing that they're conducting more attacks, but I'm seeing, I think I'm starting to see a lot less of the high profile attacks, more small scale attacks against the like IEDs or an assassination, but I'm not seeing at least in the last six months, major suicide operations by, uh, by ISIS-K. Yeah, I think you make a really uh, important point there, Bill, and it's the one we should, we should sort of at least discuss, you know, why that might be, you know, is it, I doubt that that's a lack of capability because, you know, as we've said, you know, the, the, the numbers are significant, you know, you've got a lot of ISIL-K still um, and they are active and the number of operations is high. Um, I think the assassinations are interesting. They're kind of high profile and um, you look at those uh, assassinations and you, you, you want to, you want to sort of figure out what, what was the, you know, 
cui bono, you know, who benefits from this attack? You know, why, why was this person targeted? And that's, that's, uh, that's some interesting stuff to, to look at. I think part of ISIL-K's motivation is to demonstrate that they're active and that they cannot be uh, shut down by the Taliban. And, and I think they've been fairly successful in that. You know, they've been able to, they've been active enough that people continue to take them seriously. So that's kind of a success for them. Um, but uh, mass casualty uh, operations, yeah, there hasn't been so much of that, at least not recently. Uh, and I'm not sure, I'm hard to know uh, what the reason for that is. But it's worth remembering that we used to have um, suspicions uh, in the days when the Taliban was in the insurgency that some of the ISIL-K attacks in which civilians were killed um, that were claimed by ISIL-K, some of them seemed to bear hallmarks of the Haqqani network. And um, we come now to the, uh, to the leader of ISIL-K, Sana Ullah Ghaffari, um, and people will be aware that there have been recent reports that Sana Ullah Ghaffari may have been killed um, in probably in some kind of engagement with the Taliban if it happened. Um, but there's an odd uncertainty around this. Um, uh, some people have been reporting it. There's been some element of um, official com confirmation from within the region. But there are also a number of uh, people who might know about this who are, who are not sure um, and, and don't regard this as, as confirmed as true. And that leads to you know, the various, various possibilities, including the possibility that uh, that it was not a planned operation, and that maybe this, if, if if he genuinely was killed, it may be that he was caught up in an unexpected, uh, in, you know, sort of uh, some kind of some kind of uh, firefight that broke out, uh, in which he was a sort of an unexpected um, uh, casualty. So uh, I think we're waiting to see what happened on that. But he is a significant figure because he's been leading ISIL K for quite a long time, yeah. and he is a former member of the Hakani network. So again, you have this, we have to remember this complexity. And again, this is another reason why uh, we should be so careful about the idea that the Taliban are a potential counter-terrorism partner, because the Taliban is full of factions and elements. And, uh, and, and by the way, anticipating your point, Bill, when I say factions and elements, I don't mean these people are at drag daggers drawn. They are, you know, the, the Taliban is fairly cohesive. Uh, and the, uh, the the level of uh, discipline within the Taliban is still pretty good. Um, so I'm not saying the Haqqani network is in any sense a rogue element of the Taliban. It's very much a part of the Taliban. Um, but it has the tactical latitude to do what it judges to be in the strategic interests of the Taliban, and it'll do it secretly and deniably. And therefore, you know, they will decide who they consider to be worth targeting. And that's part of what I was saying earlier we could have no confidence that we would know what the calculation was. You know, Edmund, it, it, part of the frustration of knowing if he's dead or not is Afghanistan has just become a big black box for us. It's become so opaque. You know, we used to be able to confirm these types of things far more easily. Far more easily. Um, to your point, no, I understood your point about the Haqqani network. I've heard rumors and there's been, and I believe they've been out there that the, the Haqqani's networks at time manipulates um, Islamic State Khorasan province or may use them as cutouts. So um, I would have no 
objection that the Taliban, Taliban factions, and they, I would agree, they're factions in the sense of they're different groups within, but, you know, within the Taliban may actually use uh, an Islamic state operative to target one of its rivals. That's not beyond the realm of possibility. Um, but it still doesn't mean the Taliban isn't a cohesive group, as you, you perfectly mentioned. And one quick final point, I actually think the Islamic state would be more effective in maintaining an insurgency that consisted of assassinations and, um, you know, IED attacks. The Taliban was very effective doing this. It's really what eroded the support uh, or, or, or the strength of the military and the government. Yes, the, the major suicide raids helped it, but they were, you know, it was more of a public thing. And remember, you were speaking to audiences in the West as well, whereas the Islamic State's really, it's very, uh, it's an internal matter now within Afghanistan. Um, but, you know, the Islamic State, you know, again, the estimate's around 6,000. It could be 12,000. It could be 4,000, whatever. Um, I'll take that 6,000 number um, on face value. The Taliban can field anywhere from 150,000 to 200,000 fighters. I know previous uh, reports on the Taliban, I can't remember if it was US or UN, but you know, before the Taliban overran the country, people were saying they had about 75,000. Well, I always said, yeah, that number is absolutely wrong when you were looking at the Taliban's attack tempo and operations and ability to, to seize control of districts and whatnot. You know, so the Islamic State is nowhere near being able to field a force that can go toe to toe with the Taliban. Its most effective way of fighting now is to fight a, a guerrilla insurgency inside of uh, Afghanistan. Absolutely. And I mean, that point you make, Bill, is it's worth just underlining that, that there is a mismatch here. It doesn't, you know, the, the ISIL, ISIL-K can survive in these circumstances, but they can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Taliban. And you do then have to ask the question is, what is the greater threat to the international community? Is it ISIL-K surviving in Afghanistan, or is it an extremely well-resourced state um, apparatus like the Taliban in conjunction with al-Qaeda, which has got affiliates which are threatening the stability of other member states, including Somalia, including Mali, including Burkina Faso. And that is, again, where I get very uncomfortable with the idea of the Taliban as counterterrorism partners, when they are clearly in alliance with what I consider to be the greater long-term terrorist threat, which is al-Qaeda. For the listeners out there, if this was on video, you would, you would have seen me stifling a laugh because... Edmund made the exact point that I was going to follow up with that it's the Taliban, and Edmund mentioned this earlier, the Taliban now has the resources of the state. It has U.S. left weaponry and munitions and, and the military bases. It's taxing and taking money in via narco and, and all of this. Ed, Edmund completely understands this, and I'd love it when someone makes my point for me. Thank you, Edmund. <laughs> You're welcome, Bill. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was well said. And then that was exactly what was on my mind. It's this is this is what, you know, we're talking about recognizing them and dealing with them. And, and you know, can they be an international partner? And what we're looking at is a terrorist narco state that isn't just interested in controlling Afghanistan, but in supporting groups that want to project power outside of Afghanistan. That is absolute madness, in my opinion. But Honestly, nobody listened to me during <laughs> during the Taliban's march to take control of Afghanistan, and I don't expect them to listen to me now. Um, 
finally, we'll we'll end our discussion here. I'm going to go do a quick monologue. Uh, there's a discussion in the report. It's a significant discussion in there on the um, the the internal politics of the Taliban, and essentially what what the report is saying that Mullah Habibullah Akhundzada is increasingly taking on a dominant role. Um, he's controlling everything from Kandahar. Um, other key Taliban leaders are being sidelined. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much uh, skeptical of, of a lot of this analysis. Um, the, the West has been very, very bad at reading the internal Taliban dynamics over time. Um, one of the things that was, you know, preached almost up until the fall of the Taliban, and even after people were saying, oh, the Taliban's going to turn it, turn on itself, it's going to internal divisions, um, that the Taliban's fractured and divided, and there's 20 Taliban, and they can never work together. Um, but that's not what we've witnessed. We've witnessed the Taliban create an interim government. Almost every person given a job has kept it, except the education minister. There's just been turnover at the prime minister, um, but that's only because the 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 last prime minister of the Taliban are saying he's sick. It's probably true. Um, he, you know, he, he was, he is old. Um, it's very possible his health is an issue. I'm not aware of any problems the Taliban had with him. I haven't heard anything about that. Um, my view, I, I think the, that the West often overplays um, certain internal divisions. The report mentions a, an ongoing feud between Mullah Baradar, who's the, the deputy one of the Taliban's deputy. Now he's the first deputy prime minister um, with Sirajun Haqqani. Um, look, after the fall of the, um, the Afghan government, like within a month or two, there was a report out there that the two came to blows. I mean, and that even that Mullah Baradar was killed by Sirajun Haqqani. Now, look, anyone that knows the Taliban and knows Sirajun Haqqani, his goons aren't going to let anyone within 10 feet of him. If, if a fist was raised to Sirajun Haqqani, Mullah Baradar, his family and his tribe probably wouldn't exist anymore. Um, I think this this analysis overestimates the power of the tel- of Taliban Amir Mullah Habibullah Akhundzada, particularly at the expense of Yakub Mullah Yakub. Again, that's Mullah Omar's son. He's he's one of the two deputy emirs along with Sirajun Haqqani. Look, uh, Habibullah he knows that he owes, particularly Sirajun Haqqani. He owes him for reuniting the Taliban after the Taliban leadership played weekend at Bernie's with Mullah Omar's corpse between 2013 and 2015. Remember, Mullah Omar died in 2013. The Taliban issued statements under his name for two years before it was exposed. Sirajun and his father, um, Jalalun Haqqani, basically put the Taliban, some groups broke off, including Mullah Yaqub, broke away from the Taliban. It was short-lived, but Sirajun and uh, his father, they, they got the band back together. Habiatullah wouldn't be in power if it wasn't for that. And then, of course, the, the Sirajun Haqqani's key role in the takeover of Afghanistan. Siraj and Yaqub, there were both allotted significant positions within the new Taliban government. They wield a significant amount of power. Yaqub, he runs the defense ministry. Again, Siraj, he runs the interior ministry. We talked about those are two, how powerful both of these positions. Habitul isn't going to overstep his bounds. He's not going to do anything to alienate either of these guys. He's not going to make a decision to that is going to put him at odds with them. And so if Habitullah doesn't want 
girl women's education or women to be in the workforce or or girls to have education, you could be pretty certain that Yakub and and Sergeant Hakani are probably on board with that. They're not going to object to it. That's not the hill they're going to die on. But I, uh, you know, my criticism aside, ultimately, I think the report does a good job of getting the conclusion to this internal, you know. I would say this is like, you know, we're talking about the divisions within a political party here in in the West, right? This is a, a disagreements within the party, but ultimately they're members of the party. That's what we're seeing with the Taliban. And the report does get the ultimate conclusion correct that the Taliban are, are very likely to remain united, to remain cohesive. And they, they say about a year or two, right, is their conclusion. So they get the conclusion, right? I think some of the, some of the, you know, the divisions that they're looking at, I think, are either overplayed. I've seen a lot of where some of that reporting came from. Um, a lot of times it's Afghan watchers who, in my estimation, are looking to manufacture divisions within the Taliban, but the Taliban don't work that way. Interesting, Bill. I mean, you know, I, I think you make the point very well. Um, I think one of the one of the things that is certainly true is that uh, those Taliban who are sort of internationally facing, like Sirajuddin, um, they 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 know how to they know how to hold a meeting. They they seem reasonable because they're not going to sit there and 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 just sort of you know scowl at you and 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 uh, and and call you an apostate or or, or an infidel or whatever. Um, so I think you're right. I think there there's a slight tendency in the international community towards wishful thinking. Um, I think this guy is reasonable. I think he's someone we could do business with. I think he's a moderate or whatever it is. I think that sort of thing can be overplayed. Um, and I, I do think the report comes out in the right place on this. Um, the one point I would make on this is that it reminds me a little bit um, where you have a sort of a an inaccessible sort of religious leader who's sort of, as it were, leading from behind. You know, this Hibbertuller is that kind of a leader. He's you know he's he's giving his um, his decrees and his decisions, but he's not accessible other than to a very small sort of coterie of people around him. Um, and it does remind me a little bit of uh, how difficult it is to um, transact business, also um, with uh, Iran, for that same reason, um, because of the inaccessible inaccessibility of the supreme leader. Um, and I saw this a little bit with uh, with Yemen and uh, with the Houthis, where you know you might. Uh, you might be able to talk to senior Houthis, but you were never going to be able to talk to Abdul Malik al-Houthi. That's where I see a, a, a real problem that as you try to engage with Afghanistan, um, all of these uh, people that you're talking to, in the end, they're not the source of religious authority. They're not the, they're not, they're not the ones who can actually say a final yes or no on, uh, on the things that uh, the people are, are trying to achieve. And I think that is one of the it's one of the things that bedevils the international community's attempts to make sense of what's happening in Afghanistan at the moment. Yeah. And, and you know, so the report also does a very good job of noting, Edmund, that like while, and you know, assuming, you know, that some of their conclusions are right, that whatever, Yakub or, or Siraj disagrees with it, with uh, Habiatullah on a certain position, ultimately they defer to him. And this is exactly how it worked with Malomar. I mean, he was the final authority. He's the Amir al-Munamin. He was the, right? So this, you know, 
I think that's why they ultimately get that conclusion right. I think some of the divisions were overstated. And by the way, if if this is the way that it is, that Habitul is making all the decisions behind the scene and he's inaccessible, and Western diplomats are trying to go talk to Siraj or Yakub or, or uh, you know, the, the current prime minister or whoever. Baradar. Yeah. Well, Baradar is not the deputy prime minister. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, yeah but I mean, but Bar- Baradar has been one of the main faces. One of the main faces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's so influential that he was actually the second prime minister up until uh, recently. If, if that's the case, talking to them really would be ineffectual. You would, you need to go to, you'd need to go to Habitula to get the ultimate decision. But you talk to who you can talk to. That's the thing. It's, and, and that's why it's, that's why it's so difficult. You know, it's why this kind of leadership is, uh, uh, it makes it so hard to uh, to transact business. Um, one thing I would add on Siraj Dean is that, of course, he's 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 an extremely effective operator, yeah. and his his whole history and the history of the Akani network has been that they have the latitude to do whatever they judge to be in the interests of the Taliban. They basically interpret what they consider to be the will of, of, of uh, Hibatullah, uh, and they've done it very well and very successfully. And in general, I think. Uh, there's been a sense that uh, that uh, you know Hibatullah, as far as one can tell, has, con- as you say, has considered them to have been very effective in delivering what he wants. Um, I think that gives them a lot of power. It certainly gives them a huge amount of uh, ability to 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 maneuver uh, and to get and and to, and to get the portfolios that they want and to achieve the tactical objectives that they want to. But they won't necessarily be able to deliver strategic outcomes. That the foreign interlocutors want from them, right? Yeah, the report uh, actually notes that, and I've always felt this as well: that Sirajuddin Haqqani is interested in being a kingmaker and not the king, and that's always been my view of him. He's perfectly fine with being deputy emir, with running the interior ministry. He gets what he wants. He gets everything he needs. He wields power in the way, and he doesn't have to be the big man. I don't think he's set him up for that. I don't. You know, it's possible, you know, maybe 20 years down the line, he's still actually relatively young. I remember when he was first mentioned by the U.S. military, they put a, a, a reward out for him for like seventy five thousand dollars in 2000. I want to say it was like 2006 or seven. And it piqued my interest back then going, oh, this is Jalaluddin's son. And they like, actually want him. And then the drone campaign happened in Pakistan and he was a key. He was targeted. And then we found out what he was doing in, uh, you know, with the uh, suicide attacks and leading military operations in Afghanistan and became the head of the the uh, the Miram Shah Regional Military uh, Council and the, and the Shura as well. So, yeah, he's he's certainly a guy who's risen the ranks, but he he knows his place. He's comfortable with his place. And and you're actually I was again uh, to the listeners. I was smiling as you were noting, right? The these guys are they're they know their place. They 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 get the wield the power they want. They get what they want. And hobby and everybody's happy at the end of the day. Um, they're they're. I would I would argue the disagreements between the powerful leaders of the Taliban and Habiatullah are on the margins, and and they're not ones that are going to break these groups apart. All right, Edmund, it's been excellent having you on. Let's get you back on. There's going to be another report issued when do you, we think sometime in the next month or two. Should come out in July. Yeah, well, we're going to get you back on for that one. We'll get it a quick review. Um, really looking forward to that. And uh, let's get you back on uh, maybe in another capacity soon. We'll talk about that. Um, it's always a pleasure to have you on, Edmund. It's 
I, I've been looking forward to this for what three weeks now. Um, really felt bad putting off the podcast, but again, I just really wanted to be flexible for us to be able to pull the trigger on this. And that's, that's how it goes. We finally did it, Bill, and uh, always a pleasure and very much looking forward to the next time. Yep, we'll, we'll get you on soon. Edmund, have a great day. And all to our listeners, the Generation Job. Thanks again for joining us. Um, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you can get your podcasts. Leave us a review, preferably a positive one if we earned it. Thanks again and have a great day.